Welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the podcast to restore democracy edition. My name is Brent Whitmire, and I am an editorial and features writer, and I am here in the Journal Newsroom studio on Friday, June 19th. It's been a busy week in the gallery. We had a throne speech, fireworks over the first few bills, Bill 1, an act to renew democracy, Bill 2, an act to restore fairness, and Bill 3, an interim supply bill to save the world. (laughs) Today we're also going to be talking a a bit about that, but we'll also be talking about the evolving landscape for October's federal election. And as always, I promise, no puffballs. Here in the studio, we have provincial affairs reporter Mariam Ibrahim. Hello. City reporter Sheila Pratt. Greetings. And provincial affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. Welcome, everyone. You look fantastic. I'd like to start with impressions of the throne speech and just sort of the first week of the new legislature. Miriam, can you set the scene for us? Yeah, definitely. I mean, by way of scene, it looked much like every other throne speech would look, you know, the sort of the ceremonial uh, parts of it, uh, except for the fact that we have a new lieutenant governor, obviously, Lois Mitchell, to read the speech. In terms of the speech itself, it was a lot shorter than speeches that we've seen from the Prentice government previously and from the Redford government. Significantly shorter. Uh, Brian Jean joked that it took Rachel Notley longer to answer questions in the press conference about the throne speech than it did for him to read it. And so it really just sort of stuck to some of the more prominent pieces of the NDP platform. It focused more on taking the money out of politics. It talked about the the corporate taxes. It talked about the progressive income tax, but it didn't branch out too far into lots of different things. And that was probably obviously by virtue of the fact that this is a very new government trying to find its footing, you know, wanting to get some very specific things done and trying to keep things focused for itself. And I think for Albertans too. So it's sort of the short speech to go with a short session. Short session, small cabinet. Short speech. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) She hasn't had a lot of time to develop long throne speeches, which may also be the point. And I think what she was trying to do is really set the stage that we're going to deliver on our election promises. And that's exactly what she did. Throne speeches are usually full of pomp. This one had these platonic, idealistic bill names, these gestures of decorum. And there's the advanced copies of speech delivered, which was which was unusual. But by the end of the week, there was trouble in paradise. <laughs> Shouting, heckling, gentle reminders from the new speaker, Bob Warner. What kind of legislature do we have here? We have one in short pants, like with training wheels. This is a legislature that's learning the ropes. We've got a, a new speaker uh, and 70 new MLAs. The vast majority of the 87 MLAs in Alberta are brand new. And so Warner is a speaker. He's learning... I said in my uh, column this week, it's like somebody being asked to referee a game they've never played or even know the rules. And the vast majority of them don't know the rules, and they're making mistakes. It's kind of endearing to watch them learn the, the very basics. They are trying, it seems, from both sides to make things a bit smooth or a bit more collegial. Now, having said that, it's a bit of a game with the Wild Rose, of course, where when they begin to ask a question, uh, they're using the word help. We're here to help. Um, so they're here to help the government. They're here to help people understand the government. So under the old Wild Rose, under Danielle Smith, it was very confrontational, very nasty. And they would say, basically, the government's full of crap. These people will say, <laughs> we want to help Albertans understand how the government's full of crap. So, <laughs> Yeah, yeah so we want to help you figure out why you're, th- what you're doing. Is is wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. They are trying to, at least on the surface, be more collegial from both sides. But you're right. It has started to – there's heckling back and forward. It's the nature of politics. It's a confrontational system. But they are trying to, at least from Notley's point of view, to get – the opposition on side on on several committees. Yeah, I I think that's really interesting that they're trying to help. I've never seen that before, the opposition. But she did set a tone by 
making some bipartisan appointments right out of the throne speech, giving David Swan, the liberal leader, uh, an appointment to look into mental health and having a bipartisan committee to look into electoral reform. So Notley was setting a tone, and I think the lo and behold opposition have picked up on it. She's in this honeymoon period right now, and people voted for her in large numbers, so that they want to be on the right side of that sentiment. Yeah, and I mean, she was what, she was the most popular party leader going into the election, yes. right? And so, and 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 they they know that. Yeah, and we saw what happens when you talk down to in, in the debate. Um, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, and I, and I wonder how much of that is sort of um, um, like how much they're thinking about that, the, yeah. the lessons of the leaders' debate in the election. Yeah, and how long it will last, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it'll last very long. Yeah, I, I, I'm sure because part of the wild rose, as as Graham was pointed out was mostly digging up dirt about the government in those last year. It was pulling out expense accounts and all sorts of little mini financial scandals. So if they, it'll be hard to go back to that because the new government doesn't, hasn't been in power long enough. But when they do, it'll get nasty again. There was lots that we heard from the NDP yesterday. Uh, $624 million injected into the budget. Things like tuition freezes, a reversal of health cuts, $100 million for schools. A- opposition parties are asking, where is this money coming from? Miriam, where do you think it's coming from? Lots of people were asking, where is this money coming from? Um, I mean, well, you know, obviously when you ask these questions of the ministers, the answer that we get is that the NDP ran on a budget of increasing taxes, increasing, um, you know, introducing a progressive personal income tax system and, and increasing corporate taxes. Yesterday, we saw Bill 2 tabled for the first time, which gave us our first look at the NDP's first tax bill. And so we know that, you know, corporate income tax changes are going to be coming in right away, basically July first and personal income tax changes are going to be coming in in October you know so so that's going to start to go towards some of this. Joe Cece yesterday, the finance minister in a press conference after Bill 2 was tabled, he talked about the fact that there may be programs that get cancelled. They're going to look at the budget line by line as governments do when they build a budget and try to find places where they can take money out. But we do know that they are anticipating money being raised through through increased taxes. And also, it should be said that some of the user fee increases that were introduced in the Prentice budget have already come into effect and are the, the government's going to start benefiting from them. Court fees and traffic ticket fine increases, um, the gas taxes, sin taxes, all those kinds beer. of things, all, the beer, cigarette, liquor tax, all of that already <laughs> went up. And that's not going to be reversed. The things that are being reversed are things like the health levy. That's not going to come into effect on July 1st. Mortgage fees, mortgage transfer tax, that's not going to come into effect. How much in danger are they of losing this sort of honeymoon period with this kind of spending? They're getting attacked by the wild rolls already in terms of delaying the budget until October. Now, to be fair to them, the government, you go back to um, Peter Lougheed when he won, it took him six and a half months to get a budget, and it will take time. But of course, the Wild Rose is tying it to the federal election, saying the NDP is delaying the budget until after the election, because if the budget is unpopular, that's going to affect how the NDP does nationally. But another thing, going back to the <clears throat> news conference yesterday, the first one on the uh, on the uh, interim supply when you had four ministers come out and explain how they're investing in things, reinvesting in education, rolling back the the cutbacks from Jim Prentice's uh, budget. It got really confusing from the point of view of the media because what happened, you had four ministers come out, each make statements about reinvesting uh, more money. They had no numbers. When yeah, it was a really out. a bizarre thing. Like to 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 have these, uh, as Graham says, minister after minister, sort of each one saying their little spiel. None of whom have have provided a single dollar figure. The press release provides no dollar figures. 
these are sort of like the early day fumbles maybe that they're going to have. And and yeah, and it contributed to a lot of confusion, confusion because we yeah. needed to then try to find where these numbers were. And, and the number we added up was $682 million. They said that sounds right. It turns out that wasn't a number. We thought it was a higher number, $755 million. They came back in a day and said, no, 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 it's $624 million because we added in some different numbers we shouldn't have added in over the What year. happened was they were, some of the numbers that were provided for some of the department spending, and this is getting really in the weeds here, but let, I'll, I'll go there. We were given full year numbers instead of just the interim supply numbers, which only goes till November. It obviously contributed to mistakes, but as I say, like this is a government of, of people who are new to this and are trying to figure it out. We've got press secretaries who don't who haven't maybe done this kind of work before. So I think uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a few more fumbles like this. I'm sorry, in a place to this issue, math is difficult, you know. Um, they made major mistake during the campaign regarding their budget. Um, they're going to balance the budget in two years. No, oops, three years. And this does play to a narrative that they have a problem with, with simple math. It, it's not a huge, it's not a fatal flaw by any, any stretch of the imagination, but it, it gives the opposition something to attack the government on. I think the other question about the honeymoon, and I wasn't down in the weeds the way these two guys were yesterday, which is my lucky position, but let's, I, I'm just think, I just don't think this wild rose attack on oh, big spending government is going to go very far. Let's just remember, people could have voted for no new taxes, no tax increases, no new spending with the wild rose couple of months ago, and they didn't. They voted and have often, uh, they, they voted in favor of a government that was very upfront about saying we're going to increase taxes. So I actually don't think that honeymoon is going to end on August 1st. But you can argue, of course, the two parties that were against any tax increases, at least the corporate tax increases, got 52% of the vote. And, and that's, but I, that's, you can also argue that the Tory failure to do anything on corporate taxes was the biggest flaw in their budget. And so a, 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 it's fair enough. Play. What I'm saying is that yeah. the reason you're going to have the Conservatives attacking them from both sides, from the PCs and the Wild Rose, they they're already starting to say, you know, this government didn't get a majority. But having said all that, going back to history, yeah, PCs have, have, have managed to win elections with less than a majority for un- a lot of years. Millennia. Um, <laughs> I'd like to actually talk about uh, Rick McIver. Uh, he had a, a bit of an interesting week. Does he have the toughest job in, in he has a tough job. I mean, it's really hard for him. You can't, I mean, we've talked about this before, but it's hard for Rick McIver to stand up and have to criticize things when, you know, his party spent 40 years at the helm. If, if for the other parties at the legislature, it's hard to take them seriously f- for that reason. You know, it was it was interesting. This week, Rick McIver decided that the limb he wanted to go out on right off the bat was criticizing the uh, notion of banning corporations and unions from donating to political parties. And the reason why he was against that was because he said that it would make things less transparent, suggesting companies would have to find other legal means of making donations to political parties. Boy, is he reaching And he also (laughs) And he also uh, uh, quickly reminded us that we all know conservative parties have done well raising money from corporations. It was an interesting approach to take, one that I don't think was very successful and that left a lot of people sort of confused saying, well, what are you saying here? Are you saying that companies are going to try to break the law? Well, no, no, no. I'm not saying that that at all. Well, but it sounds like you're saying that. So it was an interesting approach to take. I think that Rick McIver is going to find a a difficult time um, trying to carve out some space for the PCs and figure out what they stand for in this new legislature. And the problem right now, they're standing for the rich guy. You know what? That's definitely yeah. yeah, Exactly what it looks like when he attacks the the bill one on removing corporate uh, donations to political parties. 
And then he stands up, this week and says he has some friends, some of his best friends, make $125,000 or more, and they're having a hard time making ends meet. Poor guys. Let's have some sympathy for them. It's becoming a party of the super elites, and it's as if they didn't understand they lost the election. I'm serious. Yeah. Like it's, they're still on that autopilot that will keep on hammering these things because they won their writings on these issues. Maybe we can switch gears here, and I, I think there's some really interesting dynamics going with federal politics. Well, it is interesting. I think you know they've never had safer seats, the Tories, except in Alberta, and I think it, at least in Edmonton, there's they're going to be more competitive. I'm not saying we're not going to elect a slate of Tories, but the seats are going to be more competitive. Three of the long-time uh, MPs have retired, leaving open races. The boundaries have changed in some places dramatically, so only small parts of original writings are still there, and that always puts things up in the air. Whatever momentum comes out of the Notley victory here, and certainly the NDP is pretty sure there's going to be some for them. So I, I would say there's you know three or four ridings that are pretty competitive, especially in the places where James Rajat, Peter Goldring, and Laurie Hahn have left. Those ridings are wide open. Do the NDP have a candidate in Edmonton Centre yet? Uh, they do. Um, not as well known, and you're right, a latecomer. They much they had a much bigger chance of it when they um, had Lewis, had, Cardinal, had Lewis Cardinal a year ago, and too bad he. Um, step down. Step down because they would have had a year's grace. Um, well, not just that, but he yeah. had to campaign in the previous election. He, I mean, yes. he's been campaigning in that riding for years. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And we have um, St. Albert with the um, independent right. MP, Brent Rathgaber. That could be interesting as well. He's he's very well known, very well liked on a personal level. But when, you're, when you leave the, the conservative brand, there's a problem because he has to run as an independent and he can't raise money at this point. But that could be an interesting one as well. That's actually an interesting thing, well, how close the candidate is tied to the party and how big of a boost do they get by name recognition? Um, how big of an advantage is it for uh, Amarjeet Sohi? That's going to be an interesting That's race. very interesting between him and Tim Upple. And also, he's very, he, I mean, he's obviously so popular in that in that area. Um, and I, I don't know. That's going to be a really interesting That's going to be a big to one to watch. Yeah. Em- Edmonton West is also going to be big to watch. Where uh, That's a new riding. Used to be Rona Ambrose, but most of Rona is now out in Spruce Grove. And the Liberals have Karen Libavici there, which is a um, very big name. The Tory is not such a big name, but he's a guy in the hospitality industry, Macaulay. And uh, um, Heather McKenzie's running competitively for the um, NDP nomination, and you probably remember her from the last... Uh, she was on the school board before... I think an interesting, Geraldine Mensa made this point when he was talking about it, that everybody has high-profile candidates, but probably what will matter more in the federal campaign is which federal opposition party gets the momentum, if yeah. it's the Liberals or the NDP, and you won't know that till partway through the campaign, mm-hmm. and whichever one does is going to give the advantage to the local candidate. Yeah. And just to repeat a point I, I raised earlier, and that is the NDP budget will be coming, I imagine, after the federal Smartly. But the personal income tax changes come into effect at the beginning of October before. Right, the right. They'll be too. paying already, yes. But, you know, but we know that's coming in. We haven't seen the, the, the NDP budget provincially, the overall spending budget. They're going to keep that under wraps until, I imagine, after the federal election. So now we come to the part of the podcast called Good Stuff from the Gallery. Uh, we all share something we've enjoyed, often, not always, with a political connection. I know Miriam has. Uh, Oh, she's got one. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, first we'll start <laughs> hey. with we'll start with Sheila. Okay, I'm I'm I just read this wonderful book by called Harry's Last Stand, and it's an amazing story of a guy who was brought up in the Depression. He says our generation built this wonderful society of fairness, equity, and a social safety net, and now it's all being taken away. And he's worried, so he's going around the country on a speaking tour with the Broadbent Institute. It's a wonderful, quick narrative read 
that tells you where we came from and and tells people his worries about going back to his boyhood and it's sort of got every political issue but in a very human way it's very fun read and that's on monday night monday night that's right i'll be moderating the panel Uh, graham is moderating (laughs) the panel that was my next point (laughs) and i'll be there oh excellent wow star studded um mine is a piece that was uh in mclean's magazine called um it could have been me and it's uh 13 women sharing their stories about uh, as the magazine describes it how they came close to being on canada's list of missing and murdered indigenous women it is uh extraordinary and devastating and important uh words to read i think so that's uh that's what i'm going to suggest for everybody this week it's a great choice and uh, quickly, uh, minus the uh, John Stewart, you know, his comedy show went very serious yesterday. He was talking about the uh, Charleston shootings. And so it's a really powerful monologue he delivered. Normally it's all, all fun and games in his show. He's brilliant, but he got really serious discussing what he called a terrorist attack in the U.S. when that white man killed those nine black people in a church. So that's definitely worth, worth watching. Great choice. Okay. And my good stuff this week comes from the Michener Awards, which uh, the annual Public Service Journalism Award handed out yesterday at Rideau Hall. This, of course, is the award that Karen Cleese took home last year for Fatal Care. All the Michener finalists are worth a read, but I'm going to go recommend the the Globe and Mail's entry uh, by Ingrid Peretz. Her series was about the ongoing struggles of victims of thalidomide, uh, the drug prescribed in the early 60s to pregnant women uh, for who were suffering from nausea. And before the drug was pulled, children were born without, without limbs and with missing um, parts of spine, and some were deaf. Anyways, The Globe picks up with the 95 surviving thalidomide victims. And until this story ran, uh, the federal government had not apologized or substantially uh, supported these victims. So it's uh, well worth a read. Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, leave further investigations to Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys, as uh, Rick McIver suggested. Previous episodes of the Press Gallery are at edmontonjournal.com slash opinion or through the Edmonton Journal SoundCloud feed. The show is also available on iTunes and TuneIn Radio, so go ahead and subscribe right now. Uh, as a newbie producer, I will try to get this all spiffied up and on our website by Friday afternoon. Check out the Journal's Facebook page. We're all on Twitter. Uh, Thank you, Graham, Sheila, and Miriam for joining me in the newsroom studio. Tune in next week when we'll dive headlong into the murky waters of tax reform. I can't wait. That's all for now from the Press Gallery. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.